0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Is
1: This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey.
0: And I'm the special man who goes to special school to learn if he is indeed the special Duncan Nickel.
1: Well done, Duncan. You've got it and won. You've summarised the book perfectly. In fact, I don't think we even need to do an episode now. I think we should just call it there. Geordie,
0: I think that is a very unfair assessment. There's a lot more going on in this book than just that plot. Uh, well, there's a bit more. We're talking about Red Sister by Mark Lawrence, the first book mm-hmm. in the Book of the Ancestors series and his seventh published work after his Broken Empire and Red Queen War trilogies.
1: Yeah, he's uh, he's pretty prolific and pretty popular. I have heard about this book n- to no end and it always comes up in subreddits in either r slash books or r slash fantasy when people say what is the best opening line in a book ever and people even mention good omens or or, the top comment with a bunch of meaningless reddit awards is Red Sister by Mark Lawrence. Do
0: you know what, as you say that, my brain's like racking around, like I'm literally like flying through my library in my head being like, what are the first lines, what are the first lines? And I'm like, well, I like The Hobbit, but do you know what, out of context, it's not, nothing special. Um, yeah, and then 1984 mean, well,
1: is definitely up there. Would you? Yeah. It's immediately yeah. like, oh, something's wrong. Uh, Bleak House is another one. I can't quote it because it does a really smart choice. Of The first sentence is just London, and then it follows up immediately with this incredibly lengthy screed about uh, it being this like prehistoric soup of industrial waste.
0: I don't think what happened I think like the beginning of 1984 with one of those moments where I was like, instantly, I was like, oh, okay, we're in for something.
1: Mm. What are the opening lines of this book, Dunk?
0: Well, Geordie. It is important when killing a nun to ensure that you bring an army of sufficient size. For Sister Thorn of Sweet Mercy covent Lano Taxis brought two hundred men.
1: So, we learn a couple of things from the opening lines, and that's why it's effective. First, we learn that this is going to be a sort of, well, this is a fantasy adventure, and we're going to see some kick-ass ladies. We also learn that the author is very full of himself and really thinks he's very clever.
0: Wow, you are really going for it. Okay. Ah,
1: uh, yeah.
0: Let's have a, a stand back assessment and just say, firstly, Geordie, what's your previous experience with
1: Mark Lawrence? Um, really bad. Um, extremely bad. Uh, really, really bad experiences with Mark Lawrence. Go on. I only have read one of a Mark Lawrence books, by which I mean I read the first two chapters of The Prince of Thorns. Also, that's another thing we can learn. Mark Lawrence obsessed with thorns, um, and it was the most disgusting book I've ever read, and I hated it. And and I, I I genuinely wanted to throw it away, but I don't believe in destroying books, so I begrudgingly put it in my suitcase, took it back from holiday with me, and eventually gave it away to a charity shop.
0: Knowing those first two chapters, I don't disagree with your response i i can see completely how that you came to that because i think they are incredibly shocking he goes in his very first book i believe it's his first published work prince of thorns for immense shock value and i personally think it it does undermine the kind of rest of that series
1: which is sort of a big problem anyone could have with edgy books with the idea of shock value itself is that it cheapens itself and I think Mark Lawrence definitely cheapened himself as a writer, whilst also telling me, I mean, I'm glad he did it, because he told me, like, this is what I think is good literature, this is what I think people want to read. And I go, okay, well, you know what, I'm not going to agree with you. So I just saved myself some time by not reading this book.
0: So I, I wouldn't say I'm in a similar position, I'm in a very different position, actually. I have mm-hmm. read all of the Broken Empire trilogy, which is Prince of Thorns, King of Thorns, and Emperor of Thorns. I've also read its follow-up set in the same universe, the Red Queen War trilogy. And the I must two. say, I am a fan of Mark Lawrence's writing, and I still find that that opening of Prince of Thorns is going for shock value, and it does cheapen it, and it does frustrate me, because when you get further in the series, there's definitely an element of Mark Lawrence trying to backpedal on the characterisation, trying to, like, rework or recontextualize things to be like, oh, no, I think that was a mistake, I went too hard too early, and I, if in many ways I think that makes it worse. But I c- can't yeah. deny that the rest of his writing, I found gripping. I was compelled, even if I wasn't enjoying it. Um, I think it's not out there to say that the main character of the Broken Empire trilogy it has been described as... Game of Thrones, if Ramsay Bolton was the protagonist.
1: Yeah, that's sort of a problem.
0: Yeah, and it is a problem. And I will say this, it's not likable. Anyone who comes out of those books going, I liked York. Um, I'm I'm slightly concerned for you. But it can be, it was still compelling, and I think that particularly that first book, I was pushing for it. I was like, oh, just come on. People have said good things about this. And you get to a point in the book where you meet uh, the main character's father and it's this kind of wonderful moment of going of having this whole build-up of like this main character is awful he's a terrible human being like i can't believe how he could come to be like this twisted and then you meet the main character's father and it's like all the jigsaw pieces suddenly fall into place and you go oh oh he's he's actually the nice one. <laughs> oh, your dad is awful
1: Yeah, Uh, too bad that Dad was also written by Mark Lawrence, like, it's all characters he invented. But I'm not here to talk about, um, The Prince of Thorns, in fact, we made a pact when we started this podcast that you would never make me talk about Prince of Thorns, which now you have violated, and I feel like you should be punished for, but nonetheless, um, we read Red Sister, and we did it over our holidays, didn't we not, Duncan? We did. Oh, I had a lovely we both time. Went, went down to, the, to the, beach. the
0: south of England. It was cool. The sea was
1: nice.
0: No bugs.
1: What did you get up to, you are on holiday? Was it just so reading? So I
0: I took normally a big collection of books with me. Uh one mm-hmm. was Red Sister. Uh and one of the others was The Heroes by Dry Abercombe. And the others mm-hmm. I didn't read because I ended up reading Berserk.
1: Nice. That's so, what I did to get you. For once Duncan made the smart choice in not buying the deluxe editions and instead buying the, the little tanker bonds because I wouldn't want to bring the deluxe edition of Berserk on holiday with me.
0: Oh Jody, I went even further than that. I actually have all my berserk I actually own on Kindle. That's fair enough. Which I think it's good. I do like the fact that I can like fully Does Kindle zoom have
1: in? like a what do they call it? That thing Comicsology has where it zooms in on panels? Guided view. Does it have it?
0: It's not as good. And that's a real okay. shame because Kindle brought out Comixology and shut down the Comixology app.
1: Yeah, I heard about that. So
0: you can only use Kindle now. That's a separate matter. Um, I do quite enjoy it. I think it's a really nice way to revisit. You, know, you can uh, zoom in on bits of the art. Uh, the only problem is you can't really get two page spreads or you can oh, no! click a bunch of buttons.
1: That's awful. The two page spreads in Berserk are literally the best in the entire comics industry.
0: I know, it's really annoying. So you're either stuck there doing this like midway swipe to kind of see it, or you basically have to go into your settings, click, click, go to see two pages at once, go, oh, that's nice, and then click, click and turn it back. It's annoying. That sucks, man. I progress. I'm now into the conviction arc. Um, and that's all I'm going to say. The best I The dessert will come in a different time. I do want to talk, though, about Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. Okay. So this is a standalone book in his first law universe. Uh, he's written two trilogies and three standalones in this setting. Mm. Joe Abercrombie often gets compared to Mark Lawrence. Oh God. In terms of approaching this sort of grim dark angle on fantasy, Joe Abercrombie, I firmly believe, does it better. Mm. I think he has a better control of character work, and I think when it comes to approaching grim dark um, and that sort of darker side of the fantasy genre. Where Mark Lawrence sometimes falls back on shock value, particularly in his earlier novels. Um, Joe Abercrombie, I think, takes a more nihilistic approach to the dark end of fantasy. You know, mm-hmm. it's very much implied that you know a lot of the, t- the same terrible things that are happen you know are happening in his universe, but he doesn't put it on the page, or, or not nearly gotcha. as much. Um, he's much more focused on just the nihilistic view of the individual characters in the world and come to terms with the fact that they are little people sometimes and mm-hmm. the sort of approach of no matter how great a big hero you is i'm not gonna i actually feel it's quite similar to berserk no matter how good an individual swordsman you may ever be if you're mm-hmm. only one person there are just bigger mechanisms moving in the world mm. and you've just got to deal with that he also does a much better job so i'm really feeling like i'm knocking mark lawrence i really like mark lawrence um work by the way, I am a fan. um I also think Joe Harkin does a much better job of doing that. There are villains and heroes on both sides of every conflict, and mm-hmm. I think that's what Joe me absolutely nails is getting to go you know sometimes on the good guy 's side, they need to have some bad people if they're going to win. Right, I think that's beautifully done but yeah oh, that 's well, why I'm i right. reading really Geordie. some really great books better than probably red sister but we'll get to that over to
1: you speaking of books that are better than red sister um we'll get we'll get more into our discussion around red sister i think there is a lot to say about it um but i also on my holiday brought along a lot of books um one of them was physical um and um i didn't actually like you a bunch of them i didn't get to finish uh, and That's because I sort of got a bit listless at some point and I spent a great deal of time getting through Red Sister. Um, I, along my holiday, along with Red Sister, I brought. Definitely, the highlight of the holiday was. I'm glad my mum died or mom, by Jeanette McCurdy. You fault. You know what that is, Dunk?
0: No, not actually. Why don't you? Why don't you explain to me and all
1: here? Duncan, did you ever watch Icarly when you were a kid?
0: I think uh, our age difference is showing. What are you on about?
1: Oh man, okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense. I guess I would be the last age of person who would watch it. But it was a Nickelodeon show. It was a kid show. In the same, uh, Duncan, do you ever watch Zoe One Hundred and One when you were a kid?
0: Listen, I'm getting to think we had very different childhoods. That's
1: more your age. You're you're an old man. Uh, I was one of those uh, kids shows that was like the stars of the show are kids themselves. You know. Drake and Josh, that sort of thing. And the, one of the main actors in it was uh, a girl called Jeanette McCurdy, who played the character of Sam. And it turns out that, you know, it came out after a while that Jeanette McCurdy had a very typical child star experience. Um, she didn't want to be an actress. Her mom wanted her to be an actress. She developed a huge eating disorder. Um, and she got... Manipulated and pushed around by every adult in her life, and she has just written a biography about it. And boy, howdy, is she an amazing writer! There is so much in this book about really dark experiences confronted really head on, which is captured so well by her writing style, which is she says so much by saying nothing, so she will simply state like stuff her mum did like she'll just say mum rode me to the studio i was in my booster seat i was 14 and you're like whoa that's like you just just dropped it in front of us and left it up to us to realize how weird and 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 how much that implies but boy howdy a really really well written book
0: okay well that was darker than i was expecting it to be but that does sound fascinating so, yeah, I often go in for,
1: but yeah, I, I actually a strong recommendation for that book. It's it's quite short. It's a biography, and it's um, yeah, it's 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 amazingly written. I also read this is relevant to you, Duncan. I have been reading, and I'm only part way through. This is not one of the ones I finished, and um, I have been reading, First Rider's Call, the sequel to Green Rider. I knew you would. I knew it. So for people who
0: haven't listened to the episode we did the green rider It was one of my suggestions i got the book at christmas time i was quite an mm-hmm. unknown for both of us at the end of that episode geordie was like duncan yep are you sure you don't want to do the sequel or like shall i do the sequel and i was like oh i'm not feeling it mate maybe not now and back in my head i went geordie's just going to power through these i can tell he loved it so how, how was it is it
1: yeah yeah and we're definitely going to do an episode on this at some point it's really really good better than the original so far It's too early to say. I haven't finished it. Um, It's definitely slower. But um, when I was listening to it, I was like, it just, it immediately jumps back in. You're like, oh, God, it's so fun being in this world. I think it's now focusing on, like, this world building aspect. And there's, like, the magic is just, like, really surrounds all the characters. And it's, I mean, I think it's really similar to the first book in terms of quality, which is a good sign. I also regret us ever saying that the first book was YA. It definitely isn't. It definitely is not YA. It was about a teenage girl, and it was a coming-of-age story. So it was It YA. was a fantasy adventure, but it's not YA. It's definitely an Sorry, adult book.
0: The first book, maybe something's happened in the sequel, but I have to give back The yeah. first book, you've literally just said it was about a teenage girl. It was coming-of-age. It was YA. That's, that's like the definitions.
1: Duncan, is this book... Is Red Sister YA? A little bit? No, you idiot. It's, it's, it's adult fantasy. It's, it's a book for adults. It just so happens to be about a kid. All right, then. Anyway, anyway, uh, she, she's not a teenager anymore. Now she's a grown-up. I feel like the book is going to be steadily about her getting older as the events of the story go on. And thank God, Duncan, the king is not as old as we thought. He's not, he's not in his thirties. Okay? How old is the king? I feel like Kristen Britain was really hammering home, like, people start calling the king boy, just so you're like, he's not old, I promise. Uh, for the people that don't know, when we first read the
0: original Green Rider book, we both, so I don't think it's, this is on us, I think this is part of the author's uh, intent, or just the way it came mm. across, both assumed that the king of the kingdom was in his thirties. So we got a bit disturbed when we felt there was a relationship um, blooming between him and the
1: 18-year-old. I wouldn't say we felt. I would say I felt, and you were absolutely stunned to discover, in my favourite, still my favourite moment in the entirety of this podcast.
0: Exactly. It's when there's meant to be a relationship blooming between the 30-year-old king and the 18-year-old girl. And king in his 30s, sorry and i honestly just refused i was like no that's not how i interpreted it it's meant to be like a fatherly or an older brotherly relationship and geordie uh mildly spoiled me actually through wikipedia and
1: said i was mildly spoiled it wasn't my fault
0: was it not though did you not go seeking answers
1: no i was just trying to find out how to spell the characters names um anyway so far so good really um really enjoyable straightforward fantasy literature I also read in a theme of books about kick-ass female heroes, I started reading We Hunt the Flame, which is a YA um, fantasy novel about a kick-ass lady huntress, and um, I'm a little disappointed. I was given really high expectations for this book. I was told it would make me believe in love again, which is a strong thing for someone to promise you about a book. And I didn't oh, sorry, think it Geordie. was that good. In so fact, be
0: clear, I think had you already it was... told this person that you didn't believe in love? Because that's quite a strong assessment to come out and be like, Geordie, I have concluded you don't believe in love." Read this book.
1: No, 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 no. They said it made them believe in love, and if I read it, it would make me believe in love too. I, I still believe in love. Um, but I don't love this book.
0: I. I find that so fascinating that it takes, like, a work of literature. Because that's like saying, I don't believe in unicorns. I've read a book with a really good example of a unicorn. They must be real. Am I being mean by saying that?
1: We'll we'll read The Last Unicorn at some point. Maybe we will both believe in unicorns after that. Okay,
0: I just... There's a logic train there of, something doesn't exist. I read a fictional book about it. I think it exists.
1: Religion. I also started reading Considering Phlebus or Phlebus.
0: Because... My friend, how many books did you get through or start getting through?
1: I mean, I didn't get through them. I got through through each of them. I got through about like halfway. And then I did a lot of swimming this holiday. So were you, is this
0: on like a sun lounger? Were you on like a sun lounger with like a a stack of books? Just like, yeah, first five chapters, board, next one, next couple of chapters. Nope. The
1: reason why, Duncan... I didn't make a lot of progress, and I didn't finish a lot of books, is that normally, I can get through a fair few books. The problem was, I had to read Red Sister. It took me three weeks to read Red Sister. It
0: took me four days.
1: Yeah, I thought that might be the case. I was banging my head against this book. I think I started getting into it at chapter 10. And two of those weeks was trying to get to chapter 10. There are 41 chapters in this book. Ooh.
0: Alright, alright, let's have, let's give our synopsis, let's give it, you know, we've come, we've eaten the first few biscuits, we've sipped our teas, let's put the food down. Geordie? Yep. Put forth your soul. What is your synopsis on Red Sister?
1: Red Sister is a fairly straightforward uh, coming-of-age story about teenage girls, mm, preteen girls, at a... Kung Fu Nunnery Hogwarts. The main character, Nonna, uh, goes from street urchin to Naruto character through the course of a novel, solving mysteries, learning the value of friendship, and uh, realising that she has extra special superpowers to make her better than everyone else.
0: I think that sums up quite nicely, to be honest.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: When I was reading this book... I, was, um, I said I was on holiday and I was chatting to my partner about it. hmm And I said, my main thing was, I was disappointed by Red Sister. Okay. I was disappointed from two positions. As a fan of Mark Lawrence's other work, I felt that Red Sister wasn't bringing nearly as much new as his other works were. His other works were at least different uh, for me as a reading experience. Even if that was in shock mm-hmm. value. I was like, you know, well, it's different.
1: Never seen anyone get tortured like that. Quite.
0: And the second part was then me sending going, well, I have seen this plot. This is you know, street urchin, gaining confidence, making friends, going to special school to learn to be a special someone, and might even be extra mm-hmm. special. And what I spent my time with this book doing is wrestling with the fact of, is this then a good example of that? I ultimately conclude, Yes. yeah, it's all right. This is a decent enough example. Yeah, I of that agree. Plot.
1: I'm actually really on board with what you're saying, Duncan, which is that the actual stuff we're seeing here is not original. In fact, I'm really surprised by how similar to a lot of Naruto it is. Like, I'm not joking. I'm not saying I'm, so I'm not glad saying that Mark up, Lawrence cause... loves Naruto. <laughs> I'm just saying it's really similar.
0: No, my friend, there's a bit in this book, uh, the main character known in this story. Has these like magic? It's just like her claws, yeah, that she uses. And I always imagined them as like that Naruto blue chakra thing that like comes out her fingers and like forms claws. That's how I
1: pictured it in my head. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I I I can see, I can absolutely see that. Um, What does she call them? Like, I couldn't quite understand what the narrator was saying. It sounded like she was saying like foul blades.
0: Yeah. The, the Skysius blades, and it took me a while to work out whether or not they were meant to be, like, Wolverine-style physical blades, or, like, this sort of, like, force
1: at the end of her fingers. Uh, let's... I'm not... I'm just not sure about how to talk about this book, because uh, the book is quite meandering. It's It takes place over two-ish years, when it's not, like, jumping back into the past to carry us through Nonna's whole life. Um... And I don't think it needed to be t- take place over two years. Much like the Harry Potter books, it sort of tries to follow the school curriculum. She go, she's literally going to Kung Fu, Kung Fu Nun School. Like a, a school which you go to to learn how to be a nun, a red sister or a grey sister, where you learn to use your magical powers and you, they train you to fight. And so we see swordplay lessons, we see geography lessons, we see poisoning sessions and meditation sessions. And on one hand, I really, really understand the appeal of that. There's a certain type of person who just salivates over that. They just love school-based fantasy. And I have definitely enjoyed those in the past. But the reason why I think it is relevant to bring up something like Naruto is that the exciting stuff in Naruto doesn't happen at ninja school. It's when they leave ninja school that the cool stuff happens. And they don't leave the nunnery.
0: They don't leave the nunnery until the very climax of this novel.
1: That's right. There is one scene where they get to one chapter where they're allowed to go on a field trip to go... Yeah, there are two field trips they do, where they get to go somewhere else and have fist fights and magic fights, and that's it. That's the only other time they're allowed to leave a book. Aside from that, three occasions, they leave the, the, the safety of the nun school.
0: My interpretation of this is that I felt very much in Red Sister. So this is Red Sister, book one of the Book of the Ancestors. This felt like book one of a trilogy to me. Like, this book does not fully function as a standalone. It, it needs its follow-up. This is part one of the story.
1: Yeah, to me, that's an issue. To me, that's a pretty big issue. Like, books need to stand on their own. Even if they are part of trilogies, they can't just exist by themselves. They don't exist in vacuums.
0: See, I have more quite complex feelings around this, because on the one hand... I, like, I like, fully agree. <laughs> it's the very thing. And I like books to be a bit more self-contained, especially when you're going for like a long-haul series. If you're going to jump into Song of Ice mm. and Fire or The Wheel of Time, you want each individual book in that 8 to 14-book series to give you a standalone adventure because you might be waiting ages before the next one and it took you a long time to read that. You want to feel a sense of mm-hmm. completion in that book. That said, if you're reading a trilogy... Lord of the Rings, I I know the complex history, but it's published as a trilogy, and I completely respect the fact that the Fellowship, or the Two Towers, does not need to fully function on their own, because who in their right mind is just going to read the Two Towers?
1: Yes, that is, yes, that's a good, that's a fair point. I will simply say, why is this book 41 chapters long? Why does Nona have to start the book at 11 years old and end it at 13? I mean, one criticism I will make is that they don't act like thirteen year olds. You really should have just made them fifteen year olds. Like it would have been it just would have I can't really see any reason why the book wouldn't be better if they were just a little bit older.
0: I that's a really good point, Jordi. I found myself quite a lot of agreeing with that, especially through most of this story. I have thought about this. I think I know sure, what Mark might be intending with this. I think it's twofold. Number one, I think he wanted them to be, like, 11. He wanted them to be very young at the start to really emphasise this wide-eyed, like, and the sort of vulnerability going into the world. I think that was part of that. Uh, I also think it he intentionally made them 11 because he wanted to line it up with school years. It's just a theory. I don't know if it's And that 11 years yep. in the UK, you go, to, you go to senior school. When you turn 11, you go into big people school. It's that next step. So it's kind of tapping into that adventure. Mm-hmm. Why he then tries to age them up or keep them that young, only bringing them up to thirteen? I think it's because he kind of realizes that that's a bit of a yeah. problem to what he wants them to be doing later, particularly in the um, killing department. And that if they stayed eleven, and they kill like they kill, <laughs> he's gonna everyone's gonna read this and go,
1: Babies.
0: these are just absolute." Yeah, but they're thirteen when they start
1: killing people. Like it's not a big jump. Why not jump three years ahead? So in that's time? fine. Why not four?
0: I would think there maybe the counterpoint there is that he didn't want to have to approach matters or the matter of puberty. I think he was like, mm, I don't really want to bring that.
1: They're pubescent, they're 13. True,
0: but I think he feels like, he, he probably felt like he'd get away with it a bit more because that's kind of coming towards the end of the book after the time jump. He's like, mm, let's just bring it there. Let's just curve that off. And then maybe in the next book, I don't know, I haven't read it yet, we'll kind of tackle that, that next stage of growing up.
1: Red Sister Shippuden. Yeah, of course.
0: So, you just complained about them being young and murdering people, or did I complain about that? How old are they meant to be in Naruto when they murder, start, killing, going out, sent out to kill?
1: Um, they aren't sent out to kill. That's not supposed to happen. Um... In fact, I can't think of an occasion where Naruto kills anyone until he's 15 years old. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine, then. They go out on missions, and they're not going out on assassination missions. Except in the past, where they're at war, in which case Kakashi was definitely killing people at 11. Ah, uh,
0: good hopes of entertainment for the kids.
1: It sure fucking is. Uh, <laughs> I cut my well, formative memory of mine is watching the anime uh, at 10 years old, Kirby right back at ya, and... um. And watching suddenly the Japanese version instead of the English dub and gawping at the screen when one of our characters yelled, CRAP! they Japan. They do it different.
0: Naruto's, yeah, a very entertaining show. Uh, I've never read the manga. At least I've only read the tail end of it. I don't know, lost lost this way. Interesting plotting
1: decisions. But you can see why I appeal to kids. Why are we talking about Naruto? I, like, so here's what I want to say about this book. Here's something I really like. And this isn't something which I tend to prioritize, but I feel like it is such a standout choice in this book that I think it does elevate the book. And that is the world. I don't prioritize world building. I prioritize good characters in a a story, but this is an exception. I think this is really something special.
0: There is a moment in this book where the world building just just kind of took me by surprise. And I loved it. I loved how it was worked into the plot. Mm, I think we must be thinking of the same moment. Yes. When Nona is in her geography, astrology class, and she's like, oh, Mm -hmm. I just assumed that the moon would be round like all the other planets. They're like, no, dear, the moon's a flat disk.
1: Like, what? (laughs) Yeah. The moon is a concave disk. It is a satellite which was built by humanity... To focus the rays of the sun on the planet. And it was only... It was in this chapter. It wasn't this moment. My moment was literally 10 seconds earlier, which is when I wrote, Whoa, this is crazy and very cool. And then I found out about the moon, and I went, that's kind of dumb. Uh, but then I really came to like it. That, that one actually did grow on me. So what was your "woe" moment? My woe moment was, I couldn't figure out what the fuck the corridor was. They keep talking about the corridor, and the corridor winds. And then, and they kept talking about the advancing ice, and I wasn't sure what it was. I just assumed they were in a very northern or very southern latitude, and that's why it was so cold. And then uh, Clara is showing none of a globe, and says, this is how you read a globe. And we find out that the corridor... Is that the North and South Poles in this country have advanced so much that all of humanity exists on the equator. They all live on the equator. And if you want to travel, you can only go east and west. And I went, oh my god, that's so fantastic. You've made made a ring world in a fantasy setting where you can travel, but only by going around the outside. So if you want to like, say, invade another country and there's another country in the way, you have no choice. You have to go through that other country. This is gonna lead up to so many interesting political problems uh, in the course of this story. And I got really, really excited. And then I found out about the moon and I went, oh, it's not the equator that keeps it warm, it's the focus of the moon, which belts all the ice with a fucking strobing laser beam, which goes around the planet, which is crazy, crazy.
0: I love that level of crazy, and I love this level of world building. Um, unfortunately for me, yeah, absolutely. the only thing that made this feel a little bit less amazed, like, wow, and really like impactful is that... Wh- Mark Lawrence has essentially done here. He's got this world which he originally sets up as very fantasy, with medieval, with this undertones of magic. And what he does is he goes, haha, there was sci-fi all along. Unfortunately, you...
1: Yeah, I was actually annoyed by that. I don't, I do not like um, f- fancy, which is disguised sci-fi. I feel like, I feel like it is masturbatory by the author. It's a way of going, Oh my god, aren't I so clever?
0: Oh ho ho, oh ho ho, I tricked you. That is cruel. I think this is a very valid approach.
1: And now for our listeners' entertainment, Duncan will spoil the entirety of Broken Empires. I think, I mean, I'm not going to bloody read it, am I? I've made my stance quite clear. To skip spoilers, jump forward two and a half minutes to the 36 minute mark.
0: A one that I enjoy. The only problem is I enjoyed it far more when he did it in Broken Empire. Spoilers for Broken Empire.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm wow. I'm going to so wow. guys, the
0: next little section, I will be talking about Broken Empire because I think it's very relevant to my enjoyment of the world building. And Sister. we will never discuss in the podcast. Um, just hit that 15 minute bit a little bit
1: and I'll hopefully stop talking eventually. Actually, you fucking have spoiled the shit out of Broken Empire already. I'm going to need to put in a fucking warning. Right, like Possibly. Uh, but in Broken Empire... Ah, Goddamn, Duncan's always get... making new, new work for me. He's now started saying, like, oh, Geordie, we'll just edit this in later. He's getting he's getting presumptuous, people. I'll give you a soundbite at the end. And then he straight up didn't, left me high and dry.
0: So comparing the introduction of sci-fi elements into the previously conceived encoded fantasy world as we get in Red Sister Mm. and Mark Lawrence does in his earlier work um, Prince of Thorns and the Broken Empire trilogy, in his earlier work, he's much more on the build-up. And what we get is fantasy, medieval fantasy characters experiencing these sci-fi elements but describing it to us in terms that they understand. So you get a much slower Mm. build-up to, what is this? Um, There's a particular bit where they're going through a cave system and we see this this uh piece of steel shield on the wall which has what the character describes as glowing worms like moving along it um and these i can't remember the full description here and little or like flames that just pop up but with no heat occasionally and what they're trying to describe is a piece of circuit board Mm -hmm. Another element is a bit of architecture. They Mm -hmm. describe it's called the Makers, who were the old like sci-fi civilization. It's like it was a Makers building made out of Makers stone that we could never replicate, and it was square with even floors and ramps between them. And what they did is that they built their castles around it and using this structure, so they have their walls in amongst the Makers stone. And it's only much later in the book where we go down to like the dungeon level of this building. And it we finally clicked that it's a multi-story car park. Ah, that they'd found and like repurposed into their castle.
1: Yeah, Battlefield Earth, and specifically Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, the D&D adventure. Um, like, I like Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. It's funny. I've played it, or part of it. I did it for charity. Um, I do think it's a little it's a little masturbatory it's a little you know i i'm not writing just fantasy i look at me look how clever i am and i feel and the reason why i feel so strongly about this is that most of mark lawrence's book feels like look at me look how clever i am please tell me what a good boy i I think
0: he is a good boy i just don't think i think i think mark lawrence is being a good boy I just don't think he's been a particularly wonderful or fantastical boy (laughs) in the writing of this book. I think none of the ideas are quite as uh, original as this will first appear. And I don't think the execution of this story, which is very clearly a sort of uh, by the numbers special school story. But that's okay if it's executed with enough uh, flair, if the characters are engaging enough to kind of carry you through. And just for me, it just wasn't quite there. You know, I enjoyed Nona. I liked her class of characters. I liked the, the Billy that all turns into a bit of a friend. I liked mm. the Seven. I liked the teachers, who all got a bit of a crush on one. Like, They're all mm. fun and fine. But I went into Red Sister with such high hopes. And to find it just good, it always makes me want to feel negative about it. That
1: kind of dissonance, that kind of contrast. That's interesting. I'm actually coming from a different perspective because I came into this thinking it was going to be crap. Um, I thought it might begrudgingly win me over, and in some ways it did, and at the end, the bits I enjoyed was not begrudging. I also enjoyed the cast of characters. I found them incredibly hard to tell apart originally. All the nuns have either multiple names, like they are Sister X, but also Mistress X, and you refer to them as uh, Sister X and Mistress Y, and you refer to them as Mistress Y when they're giving a lesson. Um, And all of the X's are nouns, so Sister Rose, Sister Wheel, and Sister Apple. And it's like, okay, this is actually kind of hard for me to remember. But in the end, really came together, actually. Like, I found each of the characters' voices, I enjoyed spending time with them, and I was able to start telling them apart. I will say that I feel like part of that was not Mark Lawrence's fault. I think part of it was, I listened to this on audiobook, and I feel like the narrator did not do a great job, actually. Um, Which I really don't want to say. It feels a bit mean to just say, you just did a bad job. I couldn't tell the characters apart when they were speaking. They didn't really have very distinctive voices. And some of the characters just didn't sound like what I felt like they should sound. Sister Wheel is supposed to be an aged character um she's described as the oldest woman nana has ever seen but she doesn't sound like an old woman she sounds like a completely she sounds like she just has a normal middle-aged woman's voice she doesn't sound i'm old and frail or even like just a touch of 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 agedness or or deepness in her voice because your voice gets deeper as you get older she just sounds like every other character
0: well that is a shame to hear and the the noise that I might have been, like, impacted the rest of the story. Do you have that issue with the younger cast? With Nona, Arabella... Clara. I'm going to call it Clarissa. No, Clarice. Oh, gosh, I know not am going to have to... Clara. Yes,
1: sir. Do you have that problem with... Them? Clarissa? What? Duncan? It's not even a fantasy name. It's just, it's just like a different pronunciation of Clara. Do you have this issue with some of the younger class? Nona, Arabella... Clara, Hessa. I mean, all their voices. A lot of their voices sounded pretty similar, but Clara, Arabella, and um, Nona were very dis- were distinct from one another. And those are the most important ones. Hessa as well. She was good. She had a good voice.
0: So let's focus in then on that young cast because I think that's where this novel. It, this is where I think a lot of people are going to either latch on and go for this, enjoy this book, or not. It's in that character relationships. This is where I think will be the make or break for people on this book. Mm-hmm. What do you, What do you think about it? What do you think of Nona and her experiences?
1: It's certainly the strong point. It was the thing getting me through the bad stuff.
0: That's good. I particularly enjoyed. Um, I liked Nona's relationship with Arabella. I liked the fact that it sort of set us up that they were going to have a bit of conflict. So Arabella comes from the most richest. She's literally I think the daughter of the emperor. Mm-hmm. where Nona is the street urchin. I like the fact that there's self-conflict and their, their growing relationship to actually kind of trust each other. I thought it was really well done. The only issue I had, the only one that I did enjoy as so much was her relationship with Clara, uh, because I think you're meant to see that this character is going to betray Nona.
1: That's right. Right from the start, you to, be really to obvious. say, this is not a good I- friend. This character is kind of selfish and kind of mean. And you should know from the start that this character is going to be the betrayer. And I think there was actually a really good choice on Mark Lawrence's part. Because I feel like the fact that this is a book written for adults about kids, I think it's, it's good to write things that are obvious to adults, but not obvious to kids, within reason. But the idea that this is not a good friend, this is someone who's out for themselves.
0: Oh, I love this beautiful moment where... Um... Nona has this kind of realisation Where someone's like Just because someone says they're your friend Doesn't mean they're your friend um, And another thing like, where it's like when another character says we're friends And was like what? And she's like You don't have to declare yourself friends To just be friends mm. And Nona's like kind of learning of them Realising oh because well, she just assumed with the character of Clara Clara goes to him like one of the first days It's like oh we're friends And then just goes okay mm. That's what that means And she carries with her this sense of what friendship meant On mm-hmm. the street like, if someone says your friend, that is a deep pack. That is, like, you're going to ride or die together. You're going to watch out for each other. I say the streets. You actually grow up in the fighting pits. But yep. that's Which the vibe. more street um, than the
1: streets, you know? Like, it's a sort of... It's a metaphorical street. Duncan, you know at the end of Fast and Furious 7 when Vin Diesel says, the thing about a street fight, the street always wins, and then he stomps on the, the ground and it breaks apart... And it's only after the movie's done that you go, wait, that wasn't a street. You went on the street. You're on a multi-story parking lot. But it's a metaphorical street. It's the street that hums under our feet, Duncan. You understand what I mean?
0: I just don't want to mislead people, Geordie, because I think there is a clear divide in this world between the people on the street and the people who are deemed unique enough to be able to get a place in the fighting pit. Oh, yes. Yeah. So we actually haven't talked about the magic. touched upon That these people are special. They're in this world. Nice bit of world building. I quite liked it. You've got certain bloodlines that give you special powers if Mm -hmm. you have a bit in you. And our main character, Nona, has a bit of called Husker blood, which means she's quick and agile. Uh, Has reflexes beyond what a normal human can be. That's right. Thus, she gets picked to be in the fighting pits and not just abandoned on the side of the street. That's right. So I stand by my point.
1: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, um it's not really delved into that much, the inherent privilege of having this this magic. Like it's not something that's reflected upon. But I also think that's again because Nonna is is eleven at the start of the book. She's not prepared to really consider that. She doesn't think about I mean, you know what? I she no, I know the real reason why. It's because she thinks she's fucking cursed. She has serious like victim complex about her powers so she can't think of it as something that gives her privilege she only thinks about it that's something that makes her a monster
0: i like how it takes the time for her to like then go to a place where everyone's different like her and even then it takes her time to realize that that gives her makes her special because then even the things that we see go oh that makes you extra special she's like no i have to hide that element yeah, that's true. because i feel shame about it
1: mm-hmm the thing that makes her extra special is that um, she, she's. it turns out she's not Naruto in that she has one special defining thing. She's actually Ichigo from Bleach because she's four or five different special things all at once. Uh, not only is she a Huntsuka and super fast, she's also Quantal, which means she's just a wizard. Like, she can just do powers. Um, she basically... That gives her, I think, a Super Saiyan mode, because it means she can walk the path, not to be compu- confused with the blade path, which is literally completely different. You should have named it a different thing, man, but that means that she can just make herself more powerful. The path
0: is the, I'm glad you called it Super Saiyan. It's not quite a, like an unleash, She's not like a gate, and she's like, I have reached the path. It's sort of this, actually it is, oh no, it's a bit like the gates of Naruto that Rock Lee uses. Why are we talking so much about
1: fucking Naruto? I wanted it to be a one-off thing, but you're right, it is like the, the eight paths. You put it in my head,
0: this is what it's going to be now. But every time she takes like a step along the path, she draws more power. But if you take too many steps, you shall lose yourself and you basically burn out. Yeah. And die as an yeah. extension. Uh, but that's how you draw like your magical
1: force. Something that I really uh, thought would have been brought up. But also, she's the chosen one. So not only is she extra special in that she has multiple bloodlines. In fact, I think she has three bloodlines, right? She has Quantal, Hunska, and... What's the... Th- the Sneaky magic? It starts with an M. Ah, oh, God, you've, you've got me here, mate.
0: The thing is... Uh, Mark Lawrence puts a glossary at the front of his books And I know I could just open like the first two pages And find out But I don't feel like it <laughs> That was a long pause Duncan To be like Oh right then The four special powers of this world are Garant, distinguished by their great size and strength Husker, for their speed Marjol, for their ability to tap into the lesser magics And Quantal their ability to touch the path and the
1: great magics of the world. Wait, so Marjol is literally just shittier quantal. Yes, but it's
0: it's its application, as you said, is often used to be more subtle. It's about like uh, illusions.
1: It's sh- like it's, yeah. That's the thing. Like I'm surprised he just made it about just lesser. Like it's just it's different. Like it's about shadow magic and like. Invisibility. Is the difference between
0: uh, ninjutsu and genjutsu in Naruto, if if you want to understand that.
1: <laughs> you're right, Duncan. It all makes sense now. Thank you so much. And also, uh just what the things that Kageyama can do. That too.
0: Okay, I want to roll back onto two points here. Firstly, I was expecting in this book, because they talk about these special powers, their bloodlines, like you're born with them in you. I always... Assumed that at some point it would be addressed that people would be trying to like identify and breed these bloodlines, but not really brought up. It's there's nothing. They don't make it clear. Like, oh yes, if you have a husker mother and a husker father, you're definitely going to have that power. Like that's never really addressed. I'm like, where's the Benny Jesuit of this world, like trying to create the perfect warrior?
1: Mm. Now let's talk about My Hero Academia. No, let's not. But um so I'm I'm just going to step away from the stuff we're talking about and I'm going to now talk about I've mentioned about how Mark Lawrence feels quite full of himself and and that's because I feel like something we've talked about so many times is that sometimes the best way to communicate something is to state it simply and that it's harder to write something straightforward and simple as opposed to writing a hundred words about something you know brevity is the soul of wit and mark lawrence absolutely loves writing extended monologues sometimes it feels like the characters don't even have dialogue sometimes it feels like they're just delivering speeches back and forth between one another do you share this experience in
0: terms of the characters of this book yes but i don't want to throw that all on mark lawrence mark lawrence does do one little thing that i do appreciate and that is he did throw a very concise glossary at the front of his book so that you can just reflect back. And it has everything. It has all the characters. I didn't have to look for the book to find the character names. I literally just went to the glossary page. And it has every character and a brief description of who they are. And you're like, oh, thank you. You make my work so easy for me, Mark.
1: I don't think that really changes what I'm saying, No Don.
0: No, you're right. That's outside I'm the I'm going to give
1: you an example. I'm going to give you, well, it's not outside the text. Like, the choice to create that glossary, I think is a smart choice, because there's a lot of proper nouns in here. Dune style. But, I'm going to, get, I'm going to have to point out some examples. So, the first time Nona goes to the Blademaster to have her first lesson, the, ba- the Blade Master does this speech about conflict and combat and the philosophy of combat about hitting without getting hit about it being this deadly dance i timed it out i listened to the audiobook but the speech with no breaks is five minutes of uninterrupted monologue five minutes it really should not be longer than 30 seconds so little I'm is communicated give, I'm in that back speech for this
0: still sorry mate so i'm gonna say But isn't Mark Lawrence trying to invoke a teacher in their
1: lesson? This is literally a lesson, and I'm sorry, teachers go on... No, no, absolutely not, absolutely not. There are so many better ways to do it. Like, dialogue. Like, have them ask questions back and forth. Like, break it up a little bit, instead of just having characters go on a rant. Because I'm not talking about an isolated instant. This is constantly what's happening. And I don't know about you, Duncan... But a lot of the lessons I went to at school, they weren't just for teacher talking for five minutes straight. A lot of the time, the teacher would say, say, ask the class questions. And then in asking questions, we would build a greater understanding. And also, it's a book. It's not
0: a lesson. So are you saying there's a missed opportunity here to break up the dialogue? And also, if you have that class asking questions, it would give opportunity for that actually to be character work. ...on the class, because then you could learn about people who's asking what questions. Yeah,
1: Duncan, you stated that so well! That's right, Duncan, that would be a really good chance to build relationships, to show who's slacking off in class. You wouldn't have to write, Clara was, like, dozing in the back of the class, because you could have the the teacher ask Clara a question, and then reveal through Clara's answer that she wasn't really paying attention. And then you might think, oh, I guess Clara's bad at this class. But then the teacher could ask for a demonstration and you see, oh, no, Clara's not paying attention because she's already super cool and she doesn't need to pay attention. You'd learn a ton about the characters that way. I see the missed opportunity
0: you're identifying, but I still didn't find it a problem when I was reading this book.
1: I'll give you an example of when Mark does the absolute opposite of this, because there's a lot of good stuff in this book, and that is the poison test, the poison class the class we're supposed to learn about poison. Someone ahead of time says, the teacher, Sister Apple, is going to poison you. And you have to try and stop her. You have to try and not get poisoned. And so, as the class begins, she's like, would you two like something to eat? And they're like, no, thank you. Um, I'll have it later. And they go, yes, I did it. And Nonna realizes a poisoned pin in her chair and she knocks it off. But Arabella, who's also in user class, doesn't. And she gets poisoned. And you're like, oh, ha, ha Arabella's getting is getting her just desserts because she's rich and therefore bad. And then Nonna lets down her guard and she gets poisoned. And you're like, okay, great. We've learned a ton in this lesson. It does get slightly undermined by um, another mark lawrence wisecrack where she where the teacher goes trust is like the world's deadliest poison and repeats it four times throughout the book because he thinks you're an idiot and you're not going to understand unless he repeats it over and over but it's still a pretty good lesson also the the truth serum chapter is absolutely fucking hysterical
0: i'm so glad you brought that one up i adore that not only because it skirts around the actual characterization moments where the two mm-hmm. girls, realising that they've got the truth serum, basically just clamp
1: their hands over their mouths and just run away. But I love... Hey, no, that's so good. Wait, they just run in opposite directions from one another because they realise got to keep telling each other secrets.
0: I really... Nona's moment of um, who do you, do you... The teacher asks her, like, like oh, who have you had a crush on? And it's such a...
1: It's so awful. Why would you do that?
0: It's so mean. But it's, but it's it, completely within her character. What I found really interesting, though, is because her answers are, um, I believe it's Arabella and the teacher in question, Sister Apple.
1: And one other character, the one who's like, who never talks. She's the one who's really good at throwing throwing stars.
0: Oh, yes. Again, I know who you're referring to. Can't remember the name. Again, could look it up in the book. But unless Mark Lawrence wrote her name and go, you know, guys, (laughs) the one who's really good with throwing stars, Um... won't be able to identify her. Uh, but I really like this moment because up do now, I don't think Nona no, we haven't actually had her internal mm-hmm. voice address any of those factors. So the fact that it's it just kind of lets you know, oh, it's there. You know, she's having these feelings, but it's yeah. just not the and it's also of this the benefit right
1: of the, the timeskip. I quite like it. this is actually one of our reintroductions to Nona after the timescape. and it's part of oh Nona's growing up. Now she's thirteen years old. She's having crushes, and it's so funny that Nona... Um, like the teacher who poisons her, like that's like it's it's the most like schoolgirl crush of the person who has like is the scariest and has the most authority, and therefore kind of makes me feel safe. Um, that that's a, a really good touch. I really did
0: like Nona over this book. I I really enjoyed her yeah. her naivety. That's never too frustrating because she is. She is too trusting, and that's... sort of of her central trait. But the whole time, I... Exactly. But it was
1: never... I was never there going, you idiot. Much like how Naruto um, can never let go of his friendship with Sasuke. (laughs) Despite how clearly he should, and I
0: can't believe they had Sasuke and Sakura get together at the end. It was such... It really annoyed me that. Can't stand that decision. But back to Nona... (laughs) <laughs> I never. I was never annoyed at her. I've never gone. You stupid idiot! Why are you trusting her? Because, because you see her from no, when she's young and her having this very close of it, and finally being able to open up to everyone around her at the school and feel safe for the first time. You understand why she's just an
1: victim complex, trusting everyone, and her sorry, she's her, gone the, the other way, yeah, and her survivor's guilt over Saida. Yeah, I agree. It's um, it's it's the right choice for her character development. To go f- to 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 need to trust in people and to have that trust betrayed over the course of a story and make it clear that that's going to be the thrust of her character going forwards is the conflict between can she redeem Clara in the same way that of course Naruto redeemed Sasuke? Um, <clears throat> Jordy, what else do I want to talk about? I know what yeah. I want to talk about because something we
0: haven't really talked about okay. yet. Yeah, you know, we've addressed the world building the character moments and we said that we really like them we've talked obviously that she's at special school to learn to be the special is she the special bit of a question should we actually talk about yeah, um yeah or oh, what's that little thing oh, oh the plot
1: what's driving this narrative um I don't I actually really don't want to talk about the plot and the reason for why is that I feel like so little actually happens in this book like, so little happens. I can't stress that enough. This is what the book is about. There is a chosen one. The chosen one is going to be the first four blood. The person who has access to all four bloodlines. The most super special. We're introduced, and people are say um, At once, it's Arabella. Arabella is the chosen one. She has access to three bloods. Um, and then... We as an audience are led to believe, but maybe it's Nonna. Because Nonna can do a bunch of stuff which no one can explain. And then, as the story goes along, we reveal that it's neither of them. Both of them are a prophesized figure called The Shield. And it's their job to protect The Chosen One. And The Chosen One is actually just this other character called Zola. And Zola is this mean, super talented character the Gara of the story, um, where you're like, this character starts off being villainous, they're definitely, definitely going to become one of the good guys, um, and they can beat people up real good. The actual plot of the story has nothing to do with the prophecy, really. Like, the the real thing that's happening is this sci-fi twist. Because they came here in fucking spaceships, there are four things called ships' hearts, Which are like the engine cores to the old spaceship. And everyone wants to control these ship parts. Not just because super high technology. But if you unite all four pieces, you can control the moon. And if you control the moon, you control where its heat beam goes. And if you control the heat beam, you get to decide the fate of all nations. So it's control over the entire planet. And someone's trying to steal this um, heat source, and it's it's literally just the ph- Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I'm so glad you said that. It's literally just the plot of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone.
0: It is. It is. The the students discover that they're trying. To, this person's trying to steal this thing from underneath the school, and they do the exact thing in Harry Potter, which is the only time I did get annoyed at the characters. Is that they go? Yes, agreed. We, we can't tell the adults yet. Oh, no, because we were out of bounds when we discovered this. So then we'll get into, like, schoolyard trouble it's the fact that that she's trying to steal.
1: Yeah. Hey, kids, write an anonymous fucking note. <laughs> <laughs> write it down in, like, in block capital letters. Find a magazine, chop out the letters, and write a note that just, just says, go to this character's room and you'll find a tunnel there would have been so much... That's it. That part of the book is like... So, so, so. Like, it really barely... It's so parallel to everything else that's going on. The Chosen One stuff, it is somewhat tenuously related because basically another character deliberately gave up control of the Chosen One just to get the opportunity to maybe steal this thing. Um... So it's somewhat connected there, but it, but she could have been connected in a whole dozen other ways that could have tied back into the story. The real thrust of the story is that the reason why is at the school is that she killed someone. That she saw her friend getting abused and she used her special hand-knife powers to slice his throat. And, and then that character didn't die, got brought back to life. But... He wants revenge. The whole family wants revenge against her. And that is the overarching plot. The stuff about the shipheart and the stuff about the rest of the family is all bait for future novels. And it's all set up. And it shouldn't just be set up. There should be more it should be more closely connected to the thrust of the story.
0: I agree. I agree with that it's not close enough connected and it really almost gets lost in the we're just at school plots and character interactions one thing you didn't mention which i think is worth bringing up yep. is that it is told to nona by the um head of the the Glass, the head of the school that the prophecy is not yeah. a completely set in state like there is doubt on the prophecy and that i think it's even implied that it was basically yep. just made up to just have a prophecy so that people could cling to a prophecy
1: it's a weird thing where it's like Literally, we have proof that this wasn't real. I mean, it's like it's like Christianity. It's like we know that there are other parts of a Bible, and that the Council of Nicaea simply decided that these aren't canon, And therefore, when you go to church, you don't worship all the recorded texts of a Bible. you worship a bunch which are literally contradictory, but you just accept it. You just accept that that's a part of faith and you choose what you believe in. And what you believe in is blindly following whatever the church says. And this book is surprisingly pro-religion, considering its content. Like, it doesn't... It's not cruel about it. It's not, like, even that nihilistic. It's like, these people are clearly living basically fulfilling lives by believing and these things. And I think that can back untrue. to
0: your previous comparison. It doesn't matter that they're going, listen. We know that this was partly made up or constructed years ago by the church, or that, you know, this, is, this isn't like the pure prophecy or the pure belief. You know, this is a curated piece of work but mm-hmm. you still okay to believe in it. And they can even kind of go, there's always a shrug moment. It's like, yeah. might be right.
1: Might be right. We don't know. It also definitely seems to be right. Like they do find three people in a short space of time who are candidates for being chosen ones. So it kind of seems like it's working out, you know? That's one hell of a coincidence if it's not a prophecy. Um, I have a habit of if there's ever speculation in a book about whether something is fantastical or just a coincidence that it kind of looks fantastical, I always try to see, I don't know why, I always come out of with a skeptical eye. In the Warlord trilogy, when it's like, Merlin might not be magic. He might just be, like, really good at reading a situation and sort of saying what's likely to happen. And then that is the thing that's most likely to happen. I will believe that he's not magical. In Even in the fucking X-Files, I will watch and I'll go, there is a logical explanation for this. No one who watched the
0: X-Files <laughs> can possibly believe it's just a logical explanation. Well,
1: there is. There's a very logical explanation. Aliens exist. No, I actually, by the end of season one, even, even Scully is like, holy shit, aliens are real. And you're like, fuck, I guess they're right. And from then on, it's just like, whatever. They're just literal monsters. X-Files is not what I thought it would be like, Duncan. Not in the slightest.
0: Geordie, I feel like we're almost running a bit dry. I have very little more to say, I think, on this book. Very little mm. bits I want to pick apart. I have a little more to elements, say. Elements, like you mentioned, the, she you know, attempts to murder him at the start. But he does really feel like a bit of a sub-boss. Like, he is the boss of this book. He's there, so we can have antagonists antagonist for this story and then move on to bigger
1: is. threats later on. Something really interesting to say. Yeah. I agree. I don't. I don't have a lot to say about him. Like he's he's just a he's just a cruel cruel man. He just felt like being like oh this is just a diet character for one of of Mark Lawrence's other edgy books about evil men who like to abuse girls. Like he's just a big guy who gets fought. The fight at the end is very good. I'm <laughs> looking for my notes. I just remembered. Uh, my note for chapter twenty one says, "God forgive me, but I am weak. I have increased the speed to one point two five. I never do that." I was really Forche. struggling at this point. Forche. Uh Yeah,
0: my other notes around this... I don't know why I'm shaming you. I do that all the time. You just had a speech once about how you never do that. and You always consume the text. I never do that. Oh uh, don't. It's because you often listen to books you really love.
1: That's true. I often, like, most of the time, I look, I read books I don't, I like, and if I don't like them, I stop reading. Um, my notes says chapter sixteen is good. That's the one where they have court, and they're like. Uh, decide if someone's guilty or not. I says it plays to their strengths because everyone's in court. Everyone speaks in monologues. Everyone speaks in speeches. So it plays to his strengths. Chapter 17 is fucking amazing because that's when she's deflecting arrows and shit. Um, I can't believe the archer's paradox plays a crucial role in that chapter when someone throws a spear and Nana has to stop it. Uh, that's the bit where Hessa becomes an angel and I would die for her. And... She she pushes the spear out of the way in super slow mode and then stops because she's like, if I push too far, I won't push it away. It'll curve back round. And I went, oh my God, it's the archer's paradox.
0: I can't believe it got brought up. I think we're getting on to some of the real positives here. Mark Lawrence has an excellent flair, I think, for his action scenes. I agree. I definitely agree. I think he describes things quite vividly, but he also really describes what's going through the characters' heads as much as what they're doing. It's all about... Nona is trying to solve the puzzle of the combat and think, okay, what can I do? That's coming that way. Okay, if I kind of dodge here, I'm not physically strong enough just to like take him down. I need to think about this. Mm -hmm. And that's really nicely done in all of the fight scenes.
1: I agree. I completely agree. Uh, The fight scenes are very intense. He has a great sense of like writing in things like fatigue and um, the idea that like how someone's injury plays into the fight and affects them. I liked that a lot. (sighs) I'm going to say the last two things I want to say about this, and that is, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to say the cardinal sin of this book, and then I'm going to talk about the thing which turned this book from a 3 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10. I've talked about a lot of the bad stuff in this book, I've also talked about a lot of the good stuff in this book, and I actually think this book is overall good. So one last thing i got to say if it's negative. No, but I'm glad you're getting because that was my feels. This
0: book had a lot that I was sort of underwhelmed by or a bit disappointed in. But ultimately, it was overall good. I could not point to Red Tissing and call that a bad book. Mark Lawrence is not a terrible writer. Just on his story
1: and plotting he and pacing is decisions. is huge. But is go on, so what's your welcome. cardinal sin? My cardinal sin is this. Mark Lawrence is a talented writer who needs to learn when to shut the fuck up. Some things just go on for too long. He cannot separate his own need to write stuff which he finds compelling with the voice of characters. It's so full of these meaningless platitudes that are in the same vein as the line about armies fighting nuns. Violence is the language of destruction. Flesh so often the subject. Easy to break beyond repair. It's so pretentious. But, like, this is just... Here we go. So this is a scene which is about Nonna, who is an illiterate ten-year-old at the time, talking about her past. This is dialogue. This is her telling a story. I stayed there, cramped and shivering and terrified, until the moon's focus found me. The light filtered down, slow at first, making the impenetrable gloom penetrable once more, resolving monstrosities into chance alignment of branches. That is not how an illiterate 10-year-old speaks. That is how Mark Lawrence speaks. He needs to separate how the character sounds from how the book sounds.
0: I'm thinking. I'm thinking for a response. And I am going to say that I am in agreement. I think that there is clearly an issue where, firstly, I do not mind how Mark Lawrence sounds. You know, those sort of flatitudes, those kind of over-the-top sort of statements... Almost like he's waxing philosophy, but not really. That is that is a huge Insightful. For me. Yeah, I find them fun. I, I don't. I think they're indulgent. Uh, you know, they are. They are. You know, they're like a fillet, a filled sort of chocolate truffle. It's a bit much, but it's it's kind of still fun to have one now and again. The fact that this book is a box of them. Yes, exactly. A little bit he tixy. is
1: not Frank Herbert. He cannot just come up with these pseudo philosophical statements and have you go, "Hey, that was pretty good." Um. Yeah, but there is something. The issue of the voice, of
0: his voice versus the character's voice and making sure the characters have unique voices is definitely there. And I think you can definitely see, I think, with some of the other girls that Nona interacts with, uh, Clara being one, who I believe is meant to be basically the same age. But even she's only meant to be one or two years older. She does not talk like an 11 to 13 year old. In fact, this goes for the entire class. These 11 to 13 year olds do not talk. Like 11 to 13 year olds.
1: I understand why I wanted to be young to have Nana be naive, but Nana is more, even more naive than she should be as a 13 year old. You know, she is emotionally and socially stunted. So she could be that naive and be 15 or 16. And hell, we learn in the epilogue that at late twenties, she's seemingly just as naive. She still believes in the impenetrable power of friendship. And so, just make her older. Just make them all older. I think it would just be a, a net benefit to the book.
0: And it... Sorry, I've really got to go back to those characters when I said they don't sound like... Go back to the characters when I said they don't sound like their age. This is something that you touched on earlier, and you said in the audio, but, you know, well, they did have to sing voices. I don't know if you're referring to the um, artists putting on to sing voices, but, and I've only really, like, gotten this in reflection in this very moment... Nona grew up in the outer villages. Mm. She then was raised in the fighting pits with sort of the people from the street. Arabella was is the daughter of the Emperor. She's raised in the court. Mm. Their language isn't that different. That's true. Nona never says slang or short term or is displayed with an accent or anything to differentiate her voice from Arabella or from Clara and who's come from like the um, sort of the middle classes. They all use the same terminology, the same language. It's true. It's really despite true. Despite their
1: vastly different upbringings.
0: Do you want to end on the positive, Geordie?
1: The positive is the thing that redeemed the whole book, that turned it from, and this has never happened to me before, Duncan. This has never happened. But a single chapter literally turned the book in its head. It went from being a terrible book to a pretty good book. The final chapter boy is it long i think it is 10% of the entire book but it is
0: phenomenal just so this is not the epilog this is the incident out on their final field trip
1: with the ambush that's right chapter 41 in the audiobook it is 2 hours long um it's fantastic it's it's so good you get so much more depth of character. A ton of stuff is revealed, which justifies huge parts of a book which I thought were just didn't need to be in there and were too overly long. It reveals stuff about characters which you go, oh yeah, if I paid a teeny bit more attention around the fact that someone's coin was changing, I might have put some things together. Um, it reveals that Nona didn't just lie about her backstory twice. Uh, once. She lied about it twice and she finally gives us a real story and best of all it completely flips something on its head which is that nana has spent the entire book thinking that her village rejected her because they thought she was a monster and then after telling the story about the first time she killed anyone and she used her powers and her village like tossed her out and rejected her a character a character who's actually like very stupid and therefore very amusing that it's her who points this out she goes, well, you know, you killed a lot of, like, really important people. Couldn't it be that they cast you out to protect you? Because they knew that people would come for revenge. And I actually went like, oh, wow, that's a really powerful moment. To have the fact that you kept this secret has has prevented you from anyone helping you unpack what really happened. I love the final chapters. I love the action. The fighting is top notch from the very very brief fight with clara when she turns traitor to the the building suspension of is clara seriously betraying them right now the moment when everything seems at its worst the walking onto the path and unlocking new powers and then best of all when it's all done when they finally won there's like the boss hasn't shown up yet and you have to have another fight despite being completely depleted. It's so exciting. I'm
0: actually so happy to hear your kind of giddy joy at the end of this book. Because I was feeling bad. When I, I this was book, giddy. I had such high hopes that there would be something that we would come around and love and adore and maybe do all the sequels. So I'm going to give you something. <laughs> Because it is in this moment, this very action-focused moment, this catch-up moment, that you do see that Mark Lawrence
1: is a good writer. Yeah, absolutely, he is a damn good writer. That, that that is completely my experience. This was the moment when I said, "I get why people like these books. I get it because if I had a little bit more of this, this would be a phenomenal book. Because it's a phenomenal chapter, and everything in it. There's there's stuff in that chapter which is silly and kind of bad, like the fact that." they get to wait like literally 10 minutes for Nana to tell a lengthy story um, when they're literally in complete danger during like a siege. And they're like, they'll wait, don't worry, they'll wait. I can look past that because it is so well written. It's Everything in it is forgivable. That is the reason why we're going to read Grey Sister at some point. Despite the fact that on the whole, I didn't like this book. The fact that I feel like, I feel like it's going to be more like that in the future. I get the feeling that because the characters are growing up, they're not going to spend all their time in classrooms. I feel like it's going to be more out there. It's going to be more adventurous. It's going to be more action focused. And I feel like at some point I'm going to want to revisit this series.
0: Sorry, I'm, I'm having a moan of overjoyed here because in many respects, would you not argue for an author to make you want to read the next one? That is, like, the job. Like, once he's done that, he that is a success.
1: <laughs> no. No, I do not agree with that. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely... I think the job of an author is to write a compelling story. Uh, I feel like the, the one thing you're saying is sort of like saying it's a politician's job to get elected. No, no, no. It's fucking not. That's the worst part of politicians is them trying to get elected. No. Um... Very, very resolutely, that is not the job of an author. But I do want to see where the story goes. I do want to find out more about the ship parts. I do want to find out how sci-fi it is. I'm holding out hope that it's not actually sci-fi. That it's, I, I should make this clear. I love sci-fi. I just don't like it when they cross over. I don't like getting peanut butter in my Nutella. Um, I, I just. I'm hoping beyond hope that I like it's still magic. It's a magic but spaceship. It's, clearly, like, it's not hyper-advanced technology that is so advanced it's indistinguishable from magic. I want it to be a wizard is inside that, you know, that, that wall of light, which is the to, ship um,
0: engine. So Star Wars, like that is a fantasy. This is still a fantasy. This is simply some sci-fi coded material. It is. Worked into the lore. There's no way they're going to hard sci-fi round these bloodlines and their special powers. Like, this is magic.
1: I think, I think the problem is going to be midichlorians. Like, they're going to say, you're genetic, a genetic experiment to create super soldiers where you have, like, you can create, change the, give yourself an adrenaline rush, which changes the neuroreceptors in your brain you to see, slow see, down the thing, time. Because
0: really, now mm-hmm. I'm literally here like, oh, yeah. Like, I didn't even bother when reading this book to ask, why were they on spaceships? Why did they crash land? Have they come here intentionally? Where did they come from? Is there a
1: galactic empire? Yeah, why did you choose this planet? There might be a galactic empire. There might be. This might, you know what? This might actually just take place in the Shira universe. This (laughs) might be, like, (laughs) exist alongside the one really fucked up planet. They are both about friendship. Oh, here's hoping. And
0: I look forward to finding out when we do read the sequel of this book one
1: day. But not next time.
0: No, no. Geordie. Red this is my pick and although I was disappointed a bit by the novel I had very high very high expectations I still enjoyed it I think this is this belongs on the shelf of the good books but what's happening next what's the next one we're going for
1: soon duncan soon it shall be the month of october we'll be doing our month long halloween spooktacular is Spooktacular taken? Do we need to come up with our own version of Spooktacular? Listen, guys,
0: it's going to be a horror theme month. We're going to get two episodes back-to-back out in October. It's going to be based on horror books. So it's just, let's just keep this nice and simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Scary book club. Except not scary. Book club about scary books. And there's plenty of fantasy novels which are spooky. And plenty of the horror novels which are backwards compatible with fantasy. Um... When they aren't science fiction, a lot of Stephen King's books could be described as fantasy oh, novels. I will go
0: and bat that basically, if your horror story has a vampire, you're fantasy, or a ghost, you are fantasy.
1: Basically, yeah.
0: Let's not be that, though. Let's be more exciting than that. We're not doing basic ghosts, mate. Oh, what have you got? Come on, I'm, I'm on tender hooks.
1: So Duncan, I don't really read a lot of horror novels, um, I occasionally watch a horror movie, you know, if I'm on a date or something, but I don't really tend to read them, and those which I had read aren't really ones I could tie into the fantasy genre, so I was a teeny bit stuck around what I wanted to do. I was originally kind of planning on just doing the book I, Strahd, and sort of introducing us to some of the D&D tie-in novels, but then upon reflection, I kind of already gave a summary of it in a previous episode, and I'm not sure I have a great deal more to say. So I instead, I got out there. I got onto, onto Reddit, and I looked around to see what people have recommended for the best fantasy horror novels, books which are resolutely both horror and fantasy. And after looking around for a little bit, I happened upon one which seemed to have, seemed to have people pretty excited. And which I know absolutely nothing about. Never heard the book before, never heard of the author. But people are saying that it's absolutely terrifying. And I feel like that will be an amusing premise for an episode. And that book is The Library at Mount Char.
0: The Library at Mount
1: Char. Have you ever heard of it, Dunk? No.
0: Not a clue. Okay, great. I'm very excited about that. I'm also very excited about the fact that you've just said that you're pretty confident in what I'm going to pick um, on the following book club, so I want you to like, yeah. write that down, stick it in an envelope, and... Um...
1: <laughs> Last time I called a shot like this, it didn't go well. Okay, well, I'm pointing to the stands like Babe Ruth, and that's going to be it for our episode, isn't it? Duncan, is there anything we want uh, our you audience to do?
0: Do send those into us at podcast at gmail.com. Also, and I'm sure this is going to happen, if you disagree or have counter-opinions to what we have on Red Sister, for well, this was a very popular book in the yeah. sort of zeitgeist of the fantasy literature space, uh, please do write in and tell us your opinions. Tell us if we missed something. Tell us if it was just... We just weren't actually the right audience or... Maybe we just don't get Red Sister. I, I don't think that's the case, but...
1: Yeah, you're right, Duncan. We're definitely the wrong audience for this book. Mark Lawrence is not writing for white 20-somethings. That's, that's completely, like, outside his wheelhouse.
0: It's possible. Maybe this was written for a new audience. This is the thing, because I, I do like Mark Lawrence, but this is... I just don't think it was his finest work. But,
1: if mm, you think mm. I'm wrong... Maybe this is the Emperor Has No Clothes moment, Duncan. Maybe someone's going to be like, oh my god, finally someone was brave enough to say it, that this book is not as good as it as it should be, and will become heroes of the fantasy genre. If
0: you think any of those things, you can write in a just at isthisjustfantasypodcast at
1: gmail.com,
0: and let us know your thoughts. If your opinions are interesting, we'll read them out here on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Duncan is so insistent that the opinions have to be interesting. He is not here for any of your clap track.
0: I know. Well, it's for everyone to then justify um, why sometimes we just don't do opinions. It's not because we're not getting them in. It's because I just think they're boring.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. And I've been your host, Jordy Bailey. I've
0: been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time.
1: So long, everybody.